Hear now God's word taken from the 21st chapter of Matthew, verses 1 through 17. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken of by the prophet, saying, Say to the the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read? Out of the, the, excuse me, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. This is God's holy and inspired word. It contains everything that we need for faith and for life. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our Lord abides forever. Let's once again pray. We ask, dear Lord, that you bless this word of the conquering king to our hearts. And and may may we examine this word as a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. May we do this in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Today is what is generally called Palm Sunday. It is the day designated it is the day which designated Christ's final entry into Jerusalem 5 days before his crucifixion. Palm Sunday in essence was Jesus's way of showing himself to be king. And the crowds responded in kind and hoped to crown him. 
This event of marching into a city led by a throng with person with the person of instru- in, with the person of interest riding upon an animal was familiar in the ancient world. This was known as a parousia. It was reserved for conquering kings or governors or announcements of rulers. There can be little mistake that when Jesus sent his disciples to get an animal and then sends a throng before him to announce his coming, that he is identifying himself as king. Although Jesus would show that he is a far different king than the than those which the citizens of Jerusalem would have known. This leads us to the doctrine of the text, which I will summarize this way. Jesus is the prophesied messianic king, and he is characterized by humility, zeal, compassion, and divinity. In our exposition... I think that we can speak about Jesus as, contains, as contained in these descriptions. First, Jesus was the prophesied king. Matthew tells us that Jesus was the king foretold in the Old Testament scriptures. Matthew traces this throughout the passage and says that Jesus was, has fulfilled every expectation of the Messianic king, beginning first with Zechariah 9.9. Matthew begins in verses 4 and 5 and says that Jesus has fulfilled this Old Testament scripture. Matthew says, This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Matthew says that Jesus has fulfilled this prophecy. And furthermore, Jesus did everything in, in mind with fulfilling this prophetic utterance. Matthew also cites Psalm 118.25-26 to establish how the crowds responded to Jesus. I'll read it. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Matthew speaks of the crowds having received him as king by shouting Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna means something like, please save us, O son of David. Of course, they were revealing that the Messiah would come from the lineage of David. And as we know, Jesus actually was a descendant of David. The third and fourth cited from Jesus' own mouth were Isaiah 56, 7 and Jeremiah uh, chapter 7, verse 11. When Jesus entered the temple and drove out the money changers, he said to them, It is written, my house shall be a house of prayer. This was in fulfillment of Isaiah 56, 7. But it is confirmed, it is continued in Jeremiah 7, 11, 
but you make it a den of robbers. And lastly, Jesus quotes from Psalm 8 2. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? We will speak about these passages more in time, but suffice it for now to say that Jesus was a prophesied king. He was prophesied in the Old Testament scriptures. And he was well aware of that. And intentionally, as he approached Jerusalem, fulfilled these types and shadows. That is what I want you to see. However, if you are a Jew, you would have have never expected this sort of king. You You would have expected a powerful king or a mighty king who comes to break free from the chains of the Roman Empire. But that is not the king that Matthew describes. Matthew describes Jesus as the second heading, a humble king. Let's start with the beginning of this passage. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Capture this scene, if you will. Jesus and and the disciples are about approximately one mile from Jerusalem crossing through the Mount of Olives, through Bethpage, and they arrive just short of Bethany. He sent two disciples to get a donkey tied up with a colt with her. Luke says in chapter 19 that the colt is one on which no one has ever sat, which was suitable for sacred purposes. As Luke says again in his gospel, already... I quote, already going on the way down the mountain, the whole multitude of his disciples began rejoicing and praising God with a loud voice. This continued as they arrived at the gates of Jerusalem. Verse 6 and 7 say, The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks. And he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them out on the road. There are two crowds in effect. The crowd of his disciples and the crowds of Jerusalem that have to ask, who is this? And verse 11 says, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth. Both crowds are declaring Jesus to be king. They set their robes on the back of the colt. Others placed their cloaks on the road and others cut palm branches and spread them out on the road. This was precisely the way the kings of Israel would be received. Solomon in 1 Kings 3.33. Jeho was received as king in 2 Kings 9.13. 
and Simon Maccabeus in 1 Maccabees 13.51. They were all received as riding on a donkey. This was to express humility. However, this King Jesus was marked by exceptional humility. And again, we read in verse 5, Behold, your king is coming, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a feast, excuse me, the foal of a beast of burden. Those so-called kings were not like this king. He was truly the apex of humility, and he came to be humiliated and utterly shamed in the cursed death of the cross. In ancient Rome, when kings or military leaders amassed great victories, they came riding into the cities, but not on a donkey. They came riding on mighty steeds or chariots. To ride on a, a measly donkey, a beast of burden, an animal used to plow fields would have been unthinkable. But not for Jesus. He is meek and lowly. He is lowly and humble in heart. Consider our political representatives. They ride into the cities as conquerors. In their Lear jets and their great RVs, elaborate and ornate, manifesting to the world their own self-importance. These men can hardly be characterized as humble. What a contrast with Jesus. And consider Jesus' own importance. He is the king by divine election. He is king by, he is God's king. Think of what the Father says of him in Psalm 2.6. As for me, I have set my king on Zion. My holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. This depiction, this depiction of Jesus, this is the word of the Lord in reference to Jesus. He is God's elect king. He is God's decreed king. Jesus is all important, not just self-important. And as glorious as he was, yet he came in humility. We live in a world filled with self-importance. We live in a world filled with self-centeredness. But how lovely is your Jesus in comparison, riding in humility on the colt of a donkey, However, he is also a zealous king, a zealous king. The the political candidates that we see today vying for the presidency or representatives of our country are not only self-important and proud, they are zealous for themselves and for their own good causes. In the best of scenarios, we hope that they are zealous for our country In the worst of scenarios, they have much more to gain than the nation does. But again, this stands in sharp contrast to the Lord Jesus. We read of his zeal for the Lord in verse 12 and 13. 
And the temple, excuse me, and Jesus went to the temple and drove out all who sold and bought, bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. In the Roman Empire, at the end of this this parousia, the conquering king would generally go to the temple and worship pagan deities of the city and move on to sit on the throne of the city and, and be crowned by the priests of the city's temple. Jesus does no such thing. Because as he arrives at the temple, he finds it's been polluted by those zealous for filling their own pockets, which certainly included the religious elite. A system of buying and selling had been set up to accommodate for the many travelers who were in Jerusalem at these festal seasons. The reality is it was a a system put in place to help others. This system had become a place of extortion for taking advantage of people and gouging and was motivated solely for monetary gain. Jesus, the man who knows the hearts of all men, is enraged by this because pragmatism had corrupted piety. Practicality corrupted worship, and he won't stand for it. So he turns over the tables, outraged at what he sees, because rather than being a house of prayer, it has become a den of robbers. A den of robbers, of course, is the place where thieves would store their loot, which they collected in in wicked enterprises. Jesus compares this religious system to that. They're not concerned with piety, prayer, or worship, but with money by thievery. Jesus' words provoke the ire of the leaders who are indignant at what they see Jesus doing in the temple. But Jesus is without guile. He cares nothing for the opinions of men. He cares only for the glory of God. Jesus cares only, and above all things, for the name of His Father, and that name has been tarnished by the people who were supposed servants of the Lord. Jesus will have nothing of this. He will not stand for it. He is driven by the zeal for the house of God. The next description is that Jesus is also a compassionate king. A compassionate king. This next section is the most telling of the heart of our king. Again, when kings of old marched into a city, they went to the dignitaries, to the city's politicians, or governors, or religious elite. In contrast, what does Jesus do? Who does Jesus tend to? We see it in verse 14. And the blind and the lame came to him, and the temple, and he healed them. But the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. 
Jesus does not stand aloof and distance himself from the common people. He condescends and stoops down to them and tends their needs. He tends to the lame and to the blind, those outcasts and estranged from society. He also cares for the children. These are the lowest, lowliest in society, aren't they? You gain absolutely nothing by befriending the lame or the blind or the children. They cannot help your campaign. They cannot contribute money. They cannot contribute to your esteem and honor, for they have nothing to give. Yet Jesus tends to them. Jesus is a compassionate king. You see in this passage what people today call networking. Befriending someone and smooching up to someone because of what they can offer you and how they can help you. But Jesus will have none of that. He doesn't befriend politicians or scribes or Pharisees or government officials that may have been able to help him. He goes to the sick and the lowly, not for any angle, attending to them, And helping them infuriates the established order. Rather than climbing the ecclesiastical ladder, he's destroying any chance of climbing to the top of the current religious system. If these were Jesus' intentions, he has just burnt them all to the ground. But Jesus doesn't care about climbing ladders and about networking. He cares about the glory of God by tending to the sheep of God. But though he is humble and though he is compassionate, yet he is still worthy of great dignity. The greatest contrast between Jesus and all earthly kings is that he is, point five, a divine king, a divine king. One of the emphases of critical scholarship of the last 150 years is what has become known as the messianic consciousness. What these scholars have said, and I might add unbelieving scholars, is that the idea that Jesus was divine was a late concept. Jesus didn't believe himself to be God. That was a creation of the early church in the 2nd or 3rd century. That idea that Jesus was the Lord was a complete conspiracy. They claimed that if you read the New Testament, you'd find that Jesus did not believe himself to be divine. What we find in this passage, however, is certainly a far cry from these scholars. Not only did he believe himself to be the messianic king, and, but also that he claimed to be a divine person. These quotations, as these quotations which he cited, let me show you what I mean. First, Jesus declared himself to be the Lord, to be the Lord. Jesus sent his disciples to fetch the colt, and Jesus says that if anyone asks you, you shall say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. The Lord is translated kurios. 
That is the name which he gives to the disciples. Go and tell them, Kurios, the Lord, needs them. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, Kurios was the name given to Yahweh. But Kurios is especially applied to Jesus in all of the New Testament epistles. Hendrickson says, Note especially that Jesus is here using the title Lord to designate himself. It is clear, therefore, that this epithet was not an invention of the early church after Christ's departure. It was not something borrowed from a non-Christian culture. It came from the very mouth of Jesus. Jesus says that the Lord has need of them. And he says this of himself. The second thing that I would drive under this heading is when the crowd quoted Hosanna in the highest. In verse 16. After the children have been crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. As one commentator says of this verse. Hosanna in the highest shows that that the Messiah was regarded as a gift from God. The one who dwells in the highest heaven and is worthy of the prayers and praises of all, including even angels. One cannot help of thinking of Psalm 148 verse 1 and 2 and of Luke 2 14. Psalm 148, 1 and 2 says, Praise to the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His hosts. Also, Luke 2, 14, when the angels spoke to the shepherds about Jesus being born, a heavenly multitude said, Glory to God in the highest. If he is not divine, the angels should not be saying this, nor the crowds. But if he is divine Lord, they are perfectly right in doing this. And Jesus doesn't correct them. The third point under this heading is what Jesus quoted from Psalm 8. Out of the mouths of infants. We find that the Pharisees and the scribes were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? Why do you encourage them? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of, out of, the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise? With this comment, Jesus aligns himself with the Lord, with Yahweh. He says, in essence, if you want to worship the Lord... I am the Lord. And out of the mouth of infants and nursing infants, you, God, have established praise for me. This is our King. Jesus is the one that was foretold by the prophets. He is a humble, zealous, compassionate, and divine King. Which brings us to our applications. First, in this application, I would, like, I would like you and I to consider the 
implications for this prophesied king. I would like to consider with you the truthfulness of God's word. Jesus is present in all the word. From the whole counsel of God, he is spoken of from the beginning to the middle and the end. Jesus said to them in Luke 24, verses 25 through 27, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And the beginning, and at the beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scripture the things concerning himself. We are foolish and slow of heart to believe. But God's word is reliable. Everything, absolutely everything, was written and written in the Old Testament scriptures for our instruction. Does that not make you want to trust God more? You can rely on God every time to accomplish His purposes. That leads us second to the implications of a humble king. In your relationship with your neighbor, you and I should resemble this humble king. How do kings generally... uh, ascend to the throne? How do leaders find their seats of power? By dominance. By overcoming people. By conquering foes in a decisive fashion. As Jesus said, by lording it over them. Consider how Jesus ascends to the throne. Why does Jesus go to Jerusalem? He is on the way to Jerusalem to die. He announced this beforehand, that the Son of Man must go and be arrested, He must suffer, and He must be put to death. But far from being a a deterrent to His ascension, this is the means through which He is exalted. This is the way that the Father had intended Him to ascend. He would ascend through humiliation, through through suffering and through death. Jesus told his disciples, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Jesus said to his disciples that they will have the character of himself who came as a humble servant. These disciples will be humble servants Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 2, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father.
The way to glory was in humility. The humility of the cross. The ascension to the throne came through leaving His throne to become a servant, to suffer and die. We should resemble this. Third, we ought to consider the implications of a zealous king. We should resemble this zealous king. As John said in in thinking about Jesus, zeal for my father's house consumes me. We should imitate this zealous king. As Paul says in Romans 12.11, do not be lacking in zeal, but be fervent in zeal. Serve the Lord. Paul also said in Titus 2.14, who gave himself, Jesus, who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. We must not be lacking in zeal. We should be zealous where the king is zealous. Zealous in prayer. Zealous in reading scripture. Zealous for good works. And noting the way that the king of the universe is zealous. For zeal without knowledge is vanity and slothfulness. But zeal with knowledge is righteousness. Fourthly, we need to consider the implications of a compassionate king. The implications of serving this compassionate king is that you and I will be compassionate as well. Synonyms of this are being kind, sympathetic, empathetic, and concerned. Many so-called Christians lack the compassionate of King Jesus. They are so far from compassion that it's truly truly astounding. Yet compassion is a common description of Jesus during the New Testament. The Synoptic Gospels speak of Him as compassionate nine times. The one who had compassion on the crowds because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. It was compassion that moved Jesus to feed the 5,000. The implications of this is that you and I will be compassionate as well. This is not done about, excuse me, this is not done without the help of the Holy Spirit. So pray that you will have compassionate hearts. And the Holy Spirit will give it to you. Fifthly and finally, we need to consider the implications of the divine king. The implications of this is that as the crowds shouted at him, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. I commend, I compel you, To come and worship the divine King, for He is worthy of your worship, and He will not turn you away. Come and adore Him, and bow down and worship to Him. This leads to the second second implication. The The divine King invites you to partake of this supper. The divine king goes to an upper room and partakes of bread and wine in his omnipresence. He invites you to partake of this same meal in the supper of the Lord. 
He promises to be with you. And He says, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the ages. So He is spiritually present with you now. And He invites you to the table and wants to feed you a spiritual meal. If you will respond to the invitation, let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you acknowledging that Jesus is King. He has been prophesied, and He is a humble, zealous, compassionate, and divine King. There are scores of implications for us that in the end we must resemble this King in His humility, zeal, and compassion. If we are to be assured that the Spirit of God truly lives in us, and makes us increase in those things. But most importantly, we acknowledge that Jesus is the divine King. And we ought to worship Him and respond to His invitation to come to the Lord's Supper and partake of this spiritual meal. We thank You for the Lord's Supper. Just a small serving of bread and wine. However, we ask that You would set these elements apart in order to bless us in the partaking, that it would provide more faith to us, even if we have a small faith. Let us remember that a small faith brings a great Savior. So let us come filled with that knowledge to the table. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.